You know, yesterday I was standing in line at the Home Depot on the boulevard, which was a sanctifying process. Mm-hmm. And um, there, was, there was a conversation happening behind me that was so disturbingly evil and dark that I was just like overwhelmed again with the fact that the love of God displayed through Jesus in the gospel that transforms people by the power of the Holy Spirit is the only thing that we can count on. Like, I just was imagining myself confronting that person, like, about how wrong this conversation was. And apart from the power of the gospel, there is nothing that can change a person from that into a servant of the living God. And that's not to be mean to that person. That is the state that we all are in, in the flesh without Christ. And so to come before the majesty of God and to say forever we are changed by your love is again to, to see the monster that we used to be outside of Christ and to be so overwhelmed by the peace that we have in God now. The goal for today, during this time, is to clearly communicate to you guys the values and the distinctives of our church. Like, what makes Mercy Gate different from any other church? And as Dan talked about last week, we we cannot answer that question apart from the reality of Revelation 5, that we have been purchased by the blood of Jesus, ransomed and redeemed to be a kingdom of priests who minister to God. That's where we were last week. And it's that kingdom of priests, as Peter would say, that is redeemed for the very purpose of proclaiming the excellencies of the one who brought us out of that darkness into the kingdom of light. If nothing else is ever accomplished in your life, but you proclaim the excellencies of Christ, you have won. And so as we talk about our values, we can't separate it from that. We we can never get away from that. And so maybe you know this, maybe you don't. Last week and the upcoming weeks are specifically intended to teach through what it means to be a a member of this church. And some of you guys have walked through this material years ago. Some of you guys have never gone through this material. The goal is for all of us together to look at who we are as a church and to come out on the other side of these few weeks and say, this is what I want to devote myself to. Or maybe not. But as we talk about it this morning, I want to I just mention, when we talk about our values as a church, like what does that even mean? What, why, did, why do we need to have values as a church? We don't ever read anywhere in the Bible about a church having values. But the fact is that what we value as a church is the visible tip of the iceberg. And you guys know that every iceberg that is visible has a lot of invisible, under-the-surface mass to it. And so our values as a church, I want you to know, are rooted in doctrine, which is the interpretation of Scripture— which we believe is the the word of God without error, inspired by the Lord to give us everything we need for life and godliness. We believe that the word of God is profitable and, in fact, the only thing able to equip us and make us complete in our understanding of who God is and how to come to him. 
And so when we talk about our values, we're talking about our priorities that are flowing out of the doctrines that we have gleaned from Scripture. This is not just an organization where Dan and I have come up with some value statement to try to get people to follow us. These are things that come from the scriptures. And so maybe you look around and you're like, there are a lot of churches in Philadelphia. The last time I checked, it was like over 3,000, and it's probably more now. Thousands of churches just in our city. Just a block from my house, there's like seven churches. And you may sit back and say, like, why are there so many? And, like, how do I choose which one to go to? And so the fact is that as people look into the scriptures, there are doctrines that are primary to the Christian faith, the fundamentals of the faith. And those are the things that if you don't believe them, you are not a Christian. Or those are the primary doctrines. Like, is Jesus God? Does Jesus forgive us of our sins? Is his atonement important for anything? Is God the triune God or not? Those are fundamental doctrines that make you a Christian when you believe those things. But there are also secondary doctrines where people look into the scriptures and they... They give honest study to the scriptures, and they come away saying, I think this is what it means, while another person might look at a secondary issue and say, I kind of see it differently. And the fact is that none of us is perfect, right? If we all could understand scripture perfectly, then who would we be? We would be God. And so the point that I'm trying to make is that when it comes to secondary doctrines, this is why you have so many different churches, right? Because people give honest study to the scriptures and, and, and say, I, I believe this is honestly, the Lord is convicting me that this is what this text means. And those secondary doctrines would be things like, is it right or wrong for a woman to be a pastor? Is it true or false that the gifts of the Holy Spirit continue today? Should the pastors govern the church, or should the congregation govern the church? These are the doctrines where many, many people, way smarter than me, have studied these for so long and are still coming to different places of, of um, understanding on those issues, right? And so when we think about our values coming out of our doctrine, I want you guys to know that me and Dan in case you didn't know, are not God. I want to be the first to admit that, okay? I will be the first to admit that. Um, but Dan and I have come to a place of studying the scriptures and saying, this is where we believe the Lord is leading us to lead you, okay? And it's those secondary distinctive doctrines that we hold to as a church. And it's out of those doctrines, which are rooted in the scriptures, where we have our values and say, these are the things we're going to prioritize as a church because of what we believe. And before the Lord, Dan and I stand accountable for how we lead you according to those convictions. But on the flip side, you guys are not called to the same accountability that Dan and I are, right? When it comes to secondary issues of doctrine. The Lord calls his church to be accountable to the pastors and to the Holy Spirit. And so as he convicts you of a particular secondary doctrinal issue, it's on you to obey the Lord and to, um, to look to us to help lead you into those things. Not as God, but as ones who look into the scripture and help understand. That's it. And so I'm trying to get after the fact that... Um, there are many churches who disagree on secondary things and many pastors who I disagree with on secondary things who I love and deeply respect. But we want to communicate clearly what those distinctives are for this church because um, we truly desire that this church would be unified 
and effective in ministry, right? And so secondary doctrines are important, but they are not saving doctrines. And there's a trend, actually two trends, in our society. One would say secondary doctrines don't matter. I don't need to have an opinion on it. I don't care. I just want to worship Jesus. Doctrinal minimalism. And I would just briefly say that these things do deeply matter. And I would love for each person to know what they believe and why they believe it, even if you disagree with me. Now, there's another trend that is the opposite of doctrinal minimalism, which is doctrinal separatism, which says, I disagree on this particular secondary issue, therefore I cannot fellowship with you, therefore I will not partner with you, therefore we will remain over here and you will remain over there. And just as doctrinal minimalism can be very harmful, so can separatism. Because Jesus has saved us to be one body, one ransomed, blood-bought people. And so there's, I'm trying to say there's danger in both of those. Yet there is also much wisdom required to walk out what we believe, right? And so our distinctives as a church identify, for anybody who's like, what does this church believe? Our distinctives are those things that emerge from our mining of the scriptures, and they're like, hey, this is where we're different from some other churches. And so the goal is just to to communicate those clearly today. And our values, then, are the priorities for this household that we will pursue And we will trust that the Lord will instill those values in us as we seek him. Again, these are not just like generic um, things that we just came up with. But these are values where we've gone to scripture and said, this is what we have to pursue. This is what we must prioritize as a church. Culture is a funny thing, isn't it? Culture is... It's automatic whenever people get together. Like whenever people get together for any reason, you're going to have a unique collection of those people's perspectives, their beliefs, their biases. You're going to have a collection of their values. But the fact is that culture is actually defined not by the values people say they have, but by the values they actually live by. And that's a very important distinction that I want you guys to catch this morning. Culture is determined by the way people live and not by how they say they want to live. You guys agree with that? And so our goal, Dan and I, our prayer, our desire, our eager hope and expectation is that we can help lead you guys into a culture as a church where we are living out what we say we believe, where our culture and our values actually align. You know, there's a a guy you guys may have heard of. His name's Peter Drucker. He, He has this famous quote that says, culture eats strategy for breakfast. And I think this is so important for us as a church because not because we're trying to have some worldly strategy, But as a church, we are on a mission with an assignment. And however we seek to fulfill that assignment, that mission, which is making disciples, it can be undermined, it can be derailed, it can be destroyed if the culture does not serve the mission. If the culture is defined by living in a way that doesn't align with our values as a church, it will detract from the mission. And so again, our goal is to make sure that we are single-minded and purified and devoted in our pursuit of the Lord, that our culture and our values and our mission all are moving in the same direction. And so I want to look to Matthew chapter 21. Go grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to start reading in verse 28.
Matthew 21, 28, Jesus says, What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, Son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir, but did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? The context of this brief story in Matthew 21, the Lord brought this text to mind earlier this week and just kept bringing it back and back. And so I spent the week in Matthew 21. And as you step back into the context of what's happening here, it is loaded with deep things. From the beginning of Matthew 21, you have the triumphal entry. Remember that from Palm Sunday where, where Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey and people are, are laying their garments down before him and palm branches saying, Hosanna to the son of David, right? He comes into the city and he cleanses the temple. He overturns the tables where people are buying and selling. And then he goes back to Bethany where he spends the night with his friends. And the next morning, Jesus goes to, to go back to Jerusalem, which, side note, like, imagine you just went in the temple and flipped everything over, and then he had the boldness to go back the next day. That's incredible. But as he goes out, he's hungry, and he looks to a fig tree, and the fig tree has no fruit, and he curses the fruitless fig tree. And from there, he goes on to the temple, and he begins teaching again. And so the leaders come to Jesus, and they reject his authority. They stand before him, and they say, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave it to you? And it's really interesting to note that Jesus responds to them by pointing at their response to John the Baptist's teaching which kind of seems like from left field. He says, let me ask you this. Where did John the Baptist's authority, his teaching come from? Is it from heaven or is it from men? And they were too concerned with upsetting people, and so they just said, we don't know. And so Jesus says, you know, well, then I'm not going to tell you by what authority I do these things. Let me ask you this question. And then he tells the story. Do you see what's happening here in Matthew 21? Jesus' authority as the king who has arrived is immediately being confronted by all of the religious people who do not follow Jesus, and they do not think that he has authority. But it, his, his, his teaching and his response to them goes back to how they responded to John the Baptist, who was the one sent to prepare the way for the Lord. The question that he's getting after with this story is which of the two did the will of his father? And so when you look at it, it's so simple. It's so short. I don't want to drag it out. The second son respectfully said to the father, like he spoke with respect and honor to his father. He called him sir. But his actions proved that his respectful declaration of what he wanted to do were actually false. Though he said he was going to serve his father, he did not. And I spent some time thinking about that. Like, why would that son not go? I tell you as a dad, if my son did that, I would be frustrated. Why would the son not honor his father's will? And after, like, thinking about this for a while and praying about it, and I can't get away from the fact that whatever the son was doing or whatever he wanted to be doing was just flat out more important to him than what his father wanted. He wanted something different than what his father wanted, and so he submitted to his own will instead of his father's will. Whereas the first son, he initially refuses, right? He's, he just flat out says, no, I'm not going to do it. I don't want to. I'm not going to. But then what does it say in verse 29? It says, afterward, 
He changed his mind and he went. Would love to know what was going on in his mind after his father leaves and he says to himself, you know what, that was really disrespectful. That was really dishonoring to my father. I'm going to actually go and do what he asked me to do. You know, we'll never know what he thought. It's a parable, right? But the fact is that he changed his mind. There was an act of repentance. And this is the thing that ties Jesus' response back to John the Baptist. Because if you back up all the way to Matthew chapter 3, we see that John the Baptist's teaching was all about repentance. John the Baptist's teaching was all about the fact that there was a king coming there was a lamb of God coming who was much worthier than me, who I'm not even worthy to untie or to tie his shoes. Therefore, we must repent because the king is at hand. The kingdom is now. That was the bulk of John the Baptist's teaching. Repentance, repentance, repentance. The way of righteousness, as Jesus refers to it in verse 32, is the way of repentance. And John taught you need to bear the fruits of keeping with repentance. Meaning this is, a, this is a lifelong process where you need to continue bearing the fruits of repentance, and that is the way of righteousness. And so Jesus says to the, these religious leaders, in verse 31, he says, Which of the two did the will of his father? And they answered, The first. And so Jesus says to them, truly, I say to you, and this is an abrasive statement for him to make to these guys, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. The ones who do the will of the Father are the ones who understand that they must change their very behavior, their very attitudes, their, their thoughts. All of that, their will must be left behind for the will of the Father. That's the picture of repentance that John preached that Jesus then picks up. It's a radical 180 turning away from, this, from the self and submitting to another. Doing the will of the Father is more important than saying what you believe. Turn back in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is a text that sobers me to the core. And for every church, for every Christian, for every pastor, this should be a text that we hold on to with very serious sobriety. That there will be many who spend their life saying, Lord, Lord, I know God, I know Jesus yet they never actually do the will of the Father, and so the fruit of their life proves that they never actually submitted to the will of God to begin with. And so as Jesus tells this parable to the religious leaders, these guys were the leaders of the Jewish religion. These guys had reputation. These guys had all of the intellect. They had all of the theology. And Jesus is saying you saw all of these sinners, these broken people coming to the Lord in repentance, yet you stood over them and said, we reject that path. We reject the authority of Jesus, and we're not going to repent. 
And though you claim to be leaders of God's religion, you actually are not doing the will of the Father. You actually don't know him. That is a powerful statement for Jesus to make, right? And ultimately, that's what gets him killed because he's confronting the selfish heart that, that will not submit to the Lord, will not submit to King Jesus. There's a, a commentator who wrote on Matthew chapter 21 in this parable. He's kind of evaluating what Jesus is going after as he challenges them. And it is unique to the, to the context that the Pharisees were a specific group of people, right? Who had specific struggles and issues and sins, right? We're not the actual Pharisees. But as he writes and evaluates this parable, he says, this is from Leon Morris, he says, the conventionally religious, this is the bridge from that context to our context, the conventionally religious who cause no scandal, who go through the outward motions of religious observances can fail to respond to the demand for wholehearted repentance and complete dedication to the service of God that Jesus demanded. And so of the two sons, the one who does the father's will is the one who humbles himself and turns away from the desire to follow my own will to submit to the will of, fa of the Father. And Jesus even says that that is the fruit of belief, right? He says, you saw it and you did not change or believe him. The repentance is the fruit of a belief in who Jesus is and the authority that he demands as the king of all. And so getting back to our culture as a church, just step up out of that, the depths of the sobriety of that. As a church that will have a culture, regardless of what Dan and I say, like, let me just stop there for a moment. There will be a culture in this church, regardless of any teaching, by the very nature of the fact that it's a bunch of people getting together. The culture of this church must be a church that does the will of the Father. If we aren't a people that does the will of the Father, he will say to us in the end, depart from me, I never knew you. And that is what I'm most concerned about for my own life, for my own family, for this church, for each of you, is that every single one of us would be a person who knows the Lord and who truly does his will and bears fruit in keeping with repentance. And so, with that in mind, here's what's under the hood, so to speak, of our values at Mercy Gate Church. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on this because I don't want to, like, I don't want to take away from the force of that message. <coughs> but you may, you may ask yourself, like, what makes this church different from any other church? And the fact is that we hold to the fact that the gospel is the center of everything we do. The fact that Jesus is God in human flesh who went to that cross to bear our sins, who rose again to give us new life, and who ascended back to the throne, that is the center of everything that we do. And you will find that many churches either change the gospel, they don't believe in the gospel, or maybe they affirm it, but it doesn't actually affect the way they teach. And as a church, we want the gospel to be central in everything that we do here and at home and in private. The gospel of Jesus must be central to everything. Now, we also hold to, as a church, a reformed view of salvation. And you're like, some of you may be like, what does that mean? In short, this is all I'm going to say about it. We believe that sinners are 
actually spiritually dead. And there is no life apart from the Spirit of God bringing us back to life and actually enabling faith in God. We believe that God actually has an elect people group who he will save. And this is one of those things where there are many people who I deeply respect who disagree with me on this. And if you want to talk more about it, I would love to, just not right now. Beyond the fact that we're reformed in our view of salvation, we actually are also complementarian in our view of how men and women function together. And again, this is another area where it's like, man, people disagree on this one. We believe that each person, man and woman, is created in the image of God, equal in dignity and worth in his eyes. Yet he's also given us distinct roles to fulfill together. If you want to talk more about that, we would love to, just not right now. Beyond that, we believe that the things of the Spirit, also called the gifts of the Spirit, the charismata in Scripture, all continue for the upbuilding of the church even now. We don't believe that those things ceased at some point in history, but that they actually continue and that we should be eagerly desiring them and pursuing them to be functioning among us. So we're continuationist in our view of the gifts of the Spirit. And I do want to clarify, people toss around the words Pentecostal, charismatic, continuationist, and they get kind of blurred together. Um, there actually is slight distinctions between those words. Um, but the word continuationist, I like the fact that it communicates a continuation of the book of Acts. A continuation of the ministry of the Holy Spirit among us without which we would be weak and powerless and would not have the depths of giftings that God actually wants us to be walking in. Yet, we also are charismatic in the sense that we believe the gifts of the Spirit continue. Now, beyond that, if you want to talk more about that, I would love to, not right now. We are, as a church, missional in the sense that we believe the very purpose of being together is for the fulfillment of the great commission that God gave us. And it's not something that the pastors do, it's something that the church does. It's not something that we do on Sundays, it's something that we do all the time. And so those are the distinctives. When you look at the church and you're like, how is this different? That's it. But we have a rich statement of faith that I would love for you guys to, to, to read through. It's on our website. It's a rich statement of faith that comes from the word of God. And as I said, you may disagree on some points. But I want more than most things for each one of you to know what you believe from the Bible and why. And if you find yourself in a place where you're like, I don't agree with these distinctives and I'm convicted by God that I need to serve somewhere else, I want you to know that's okay. I want you to know that secondary doctrinal issues for Dan and I, Dan mentioned it last week. We must be able to partner together with churches that disagree on these things and honor them and actually seek and pursue the, the Great Commission together as much as we can. And so if you don't agree with those 100%, the secondary issues, and even talking through the distinctives, Dan and I are, were talking like, some of them are apples and oranges because if you're not a gospel-centered church, I don't think that's a secondary issue. That's a primary thing. But when it comes to the other things, like, I want you to know there's, it's okay to disagree on those things. But as a church, those are the things that we value deeply, and we will teach, and we will pursue, and I want you guys to know that. Now, flowing out of those distinctives, out of our doctrine, are the values, the things that we want to prioritize at all times, both in our families, our private lives, and in our church. And those things 
are like a telescoping boom. They're like a crane where one proceeds from the previous. We only have three values. Keep it simple for the smart people. And those three values proceed one to the next to the next. Yet they all are necessary together as we see in Scripture. And so let me just say, just so you can hear them, our values are vulnerable communion with God, intentional community with one another, and sacrificial mission to others. And you could boil that down even more simple, communion, community, and commission. You guys all remember that now? Community, com communion, community, and commission. Three C's. Don't forget them. Those things are necessary for the Christian. And those things are the things that we will seek to establish as the culture of this church. And so... Looking, looking at vulnerable communion, I also want to say, we talked about these more in detail back in July. If you want to listen through that, I would love for that to happen. Um, but quickly looking at vulnerable communion with God. I just want to read this. The core of the Christian life is one of glorifying God and enjoying his presence. That's it. The core of the Christian life is about glorifying God and enjoying his presence as his blood-bought kingdom of priests who are all about proclaiming his excellencies. And this is priority number one for us as a church. This is it. Like, if you never did anything else, like I said, in your life but this, I would be thrilled. Because of the fact that vulnerable communion with God is the thing that causes any spiritual fruit to happen. Turn to John chapter 15. Communion with God is where we receive our life as Christians. Communion with God is our daily bread. It is our sustenance. It is everything to us. John chapter 15 is a well-known text. Jesus says, I am the vine in verse 5. There's that picture of the vineyard again. I am the vine, the true vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Not some things. Nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is actually thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done. By this, my Father is glorified. In other words, here's the will of the Father, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Apart from abiding in Jesus, you can do nothing, and as a church, we will never accomplish anything. We will not be able to bear the fruit that we hope to bear if we don't abide in the vine. In other words, we will only ever go as far as our abiding goes. If you picture the crane again, the crane will only ever reach the heights that our vulnerable communion before the Lord extends. We will never be able to reach farther than that abiding goes. I had this dream the other night that was so short and so weird, but it brought to mind just like a picture of solder. How many of you ever soldered a pipe or an electronic? Probably not many people. But here's the point. It's like in my dream, I'm seeing this thing. And when you go to solder a pipe to a fitting or two pipes together, you have to heat it up. 
right? Solder is just like a roll of wire. I don't know if you guys might not even know what it is. It's like a roll of wire. And it's stiff. It's rigid. You can bend it, but it can't connect anything until it's melted. You have to apply heat to the pipe. And so even as I was, like, last week, I'm trying to fix a pipe in my basement. I'm trying, I'm, like, heating up the pipe. You have to keep the pipe under the heat. It has to be exposed to the heat. And once the pipe gets hot enough, the solder is melted, and it gets sucked into the joint, and that is how it is effective, by being melted by the heat. But if you take the heat away before the solder melts, it doesn't do anything. If you take the heat away while the solder begins to melt, it still doesn't do anything. Then it gets all sticky and it gets all lumpy and it doesn't work. The fact is that the heat has to remain on the pipe until the solder is thoroughly melted. And then as soon as you remove the heat, it solidifies. Without the heat, the solder is ineffective. As a Christian, when you remove yourself from the heat of God's presence, you are like that lumpy, sticky solder that doesn't accomplish its purpose. In order for us to bear the fruits that our Father desires us to bear, we must be continuously exposed to the heat of God's presence. And as soon as you step away from it, you stop bearing fruit. Because apart from him, you can do nothing. Anything you accomplish outside of God's presence is in the flesh. And the scripture says those things will not stand. They'll be burned up like hay and stubble. The pipe must remain under the heat in order for the solder to work. But here's another thing. If there's water in the pipe while you're trying to solder it, and this is where I got hung up. I didn't know the water was in the pipe. And I'm heating it and heating it and heating it. And the solder's not melting. I'm like, what is going on? Where's Kevin when you need him? I need to call Kevin over here. And then I realized there's water in the pipe. When you heat the pipe that's full of water, the water steals all the thermal energy from the pipe, and therefore the pipe is never hot enough to melt the solder because the water is stealing all the energy. Even if you are a Christian who is around the heat of God's presence, like you come here and you're around it, but you're filled up with other things that steal your attention, that steal your devotion, the solder's not going to melt. If there's anything obstructing you from being melted in God's presence, those things are going to receive all the attention. Jesus said you can't serve two masters. You're going to hate one and love the other, or vice versa. You can't serve two masters. If you're filled with other things that oppose the will of the Father, you're not going to bear the fruit that the Lord is calling you to bear. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3 quickly. This is where, if I could push one thing, fighting to be in the presence of God where we're exposed to the heat of his glory is the one thing that we must fight for as much as possible. Fighting to clear out anything else that would steal our attention as Paul says in Colossians 3, if you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. Seek them. Don't just think about them. Seek them. Those things are where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. He says, set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Therefore, put to death everything that's earthly in you. Put it to death. It cannot linger in us. We've got to put it to death. I was listening to a testimony the other day of a guy who was at the gym sharing the gospel with a young man. And he asked him, is there anything I can pray for you about? 
And the, the guy says to him, actually, yeah, I'm really addicted to pornography and I want to be set free. But then he turns and, and says, like, what are you tempted by? And he, he actually couldn't believe that the man sharing the gospel with him wasn't tempted by pornography. And he actually was getting angry to the point, like, you're lying to me. You must be tempted with this. And the guy says, in that moment, the Lord convicted him. And as I'm listening to it, the Lord's doing the same thing to me. <laughs> he felt the Lord say to, to him, the biggest temptation that you have is relaxing your standard of personal intimacy with the Father. And as I heard him say that, I'm like, man, that is the biggest temptation for me as well. Relaxing the standard of intimacy and communion with God. Everything else in life is seeking that place in your attention. And it's so easy to give in to all those things and to say, you know what? I don't need to spend that much time with the Lord right now. I, can, I, I need to go get these other things done. Oh, but that is where life is found. That is where the fruit comes from. And I'm not just talking about reading a couple verses from the Bible. When we say vulnerable communion before the Lord, we're talking about your undivided attention where you come before the, the Heavenly Father and you enjoy his presence. You have your word with you. You're in prayer. You're worshiping him. All of your attention is fixed upon him and nothing else. If we could fight for that level of attention to God, that's where the fruit comes from. That's when the boom begins to reach out. And that is where the other values begin to come into play. Our intentional community with one another that is diversified, that is characterized by serving one another, that is compassionate, that flows out of our undivided attention before the Lord in private. And then as we develop that loving, compassionate, serving community, that's when the arm begins to reach further into the world where we see people like the person behind me at Home Depot, and you cannot help but share the gospel because this love is so great, it's so deep, it's so incredible you cannot help but share it but without the arm of vulnerable communion with the lord being lifted up the community and the commission are not ever going to happen because apart from me you can do nothing the lord says i think it's martin luther that is famous for this saying, like, I have so many things to do today, so I have to spend four hours in prayer so I can accomplish them all. The man who I was just sharing about on the podcast says that he tithes every day, 10% of his day, for communion with the Lord, 2.4 hours, and anything less than that, he's not satisfied with. Now, you may be like, whoa, Four hours, two and a half hours. I'm not trying to be legalistic in what the Lord demands of you personally. But the point that I'm trying to make is in order for us to ever be effective, the more time we devote to the Lord with undivided attention, the more we will accomplish for him. And this is not like us earning our way into his kingdom. This is the promise that God has given to us. When you abide in me, you will bear fruit. The people who know me actually prove that by the fruit that they bear. And so as a church, if we could value anything, it's the radical fight to get before the Lord, giving up everything else to be before him in his presence, both in private and corporately, that we might know him and abide in him and be exposed to the heat of his glory. And from there, the other pieces fall into place. We begin to be a church that values our differences, right? We honor one another. We reflect the diversity of the community, right, Millie? We reflect 
the beautiful service of Jesus who washed the feet of his disciples. But that culture only happens when we're transformed by the presence of God. We begin to be a church that loves to go to the darkest places and proclaim the gospel and do ministry to people who hate God because we love God so much and we know him so well and we're driven by that love to share it with others. We've got to fight for the communion with God. And I cannot make anybody do that. Dan can't make anybody do that. We could talk until we're blue in the face and we can't make you do that. It has to be an act of laying yourself on the altar, coming before the Lord and saying, what are the things that are keeping me from you? And fighting to get away from those things into his presence. And it takes radical sacrifice. Just to be honest with you, like, I long for the ability to wake up at four in the morning and spend two hours in communion with God. And as much as I long for that, I can't do it faithfully. I want that time. And that's where I'm at with the Lord. I'm, I'm like, Lord, I need help with this. I actually need the Spirit of God to strengthen my weak flesh. My spirit's willing, but my flesh is so weak, and I need him to help me. But it requires sacrifice on my part. You're going to have to sacrifice something at some point. Otherwise, you will be like the son who says, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to do your will, Father. And you remain stuck there, never doing the will of the Father, proving that you never actually know him. And that is what scares me. I want each one of you to bear the fruit of his disciples. I'm going to close there. I wanted to share one last illustration. My son started playing soccer recently. And I was at his practice the other night, and there's a, an older group of kids on the next field, and there was only like six of them there. And they were there for soccer. They're there to learn the game, to play the game. And there's only six of them there. And I, I'm watching as they, they start to set up a scrimmage, but there's not enough people to play an actual soccer game with six people. And so a bunch of the other coaches came over and got on the field so that these kids could play the game. And it, as I'm seeing this, I'm, I begin to think of Ephesians chapter 4. My job and Dan's job is like that of a coach where we are to equip and train and strengthen and lead you guys to be the ones who are doing the ministry together. Ephesians 4 says the pastors and, and teachers are given for the equipping of the saints to do the ministry. And I felt like in that moment as I'm watching the coaches playing the game, I'm like, wow, this kind of feels like where we're at as a church right now. We want each one of you guys in the game. We want every one of you pursuing the Lord with everything you have. We want every single one of you to know God, to do the will of the Father, and to bear much fruit. And it feels sometimes like not everybody wants to be in the game. And so as we go through this series, this is my challenge to you. This is from brother to brother and sister. We want to do everything we can that you may be equipped to do the work of the ministry. But as you look at these values and as the, at, at these doctrinal distinctives, I want you to honestly come before the Lord and say, can I commit myself to these things? Am I devoted to being on this team, in this game, in this context where there's a lot of brokenness around us? I'm asking you to consider that before the Lord. And I'm asking you to spend time in prayer coming to that decision. 
fact is the, the Holy Spirit has been given so that everyone gets to play, so that everyone gets to do the work of the ministry. And so Dan and I are going to lead. We're going to lead. We're going to step in where we have to step in. We're joyfully, eagerly doing that. But this is a call for each of you to get before the Lord. And don't, don't let me, don't conflate doing the will of the Father with being a person who goes to Mercy Gate Church. Don't conflate those two things. You can be a person who bears much fruit doing the will of the Father in many other churches besides here. But I want you to honestly come before the Lord and say, what do I need to give up? How can I serve you? How can I pursue you? What do I need to sacrifice, Lord? Because I want to bear the fruit of your disciple. I want to value enjoying your presence. Lord, I want to value the community that you died to purchase and redeem. Lord, I want to value the lost who are so lost in their darkness and brokenness. It's only the Lord that can bring those things to pass. And so I've put my burden before you. I put the ball in your court, and I trust the Lord to work in each one of you. And so, Lord, I pray right now for each person in this room. I pray for each person who may be listening from home or at work. Lord, I pray for each person who has come through the doors of this building, who has at one time or another called themselves a person who goes to Mercy Gate. Lord, I pray for every single one of them. Lord, you know my burden, you know my heart for these people, that they would love you to the fullest, that they would be radical in their pursuit of you. And so, Lord, I pray, even as Tommy prayed earlier, for the spiritual clarity for each one of us. Lord, we need to be a people who is called by you to specific tasks and then goes after those things with everything. And so, Lord, I pray that you would make those callings clear, make those assignments clear, make the giftings clear that you have given and still will give to each person in here to fulfill what you call them to. And Lord, I pray that your church here in Mercy Gate, as one of your little parts of the body in the world, Lord, I pray that this church would thrive as we bear the fruit of your true disciples. Lord, I pray that you would light us on fire with your presence. Lord, I pray that we would never be satisfied stepping away from the heat of your glory. And so, Lord, I trust you. I trust you with this church. I trust you with this family. And I leave it in your hands. In Jesus' name. Uh, here's what I'd like to do. Um, if this kind of landed on you, like, oh, my. <laughs> that it, those are sobering words. Those are heavy words. Those are bringing my soul to some level of an account. And maybe you're even like, I don't even know if this is a healthy sense of account right now. Um, I'd, I'd, you need to sit there for a while. Sit there. Um, and here, so here's what I'm going to propose we do is let's take five minutes. If you need to sit with the Lord in this kind of context, feel free to do that. If you're like, no, I'm, I'm kind of good, like, feel free to grab your kiddos. And if you're going to talk and do whatever, just do it out there. But after that five minutes, if you've got questions and you want to talk more, we're going to create space for that. So James and I will stick around and just, like, any questions you got, we'll, we'll kind of talk through. Um, if, you got, if you're just like, no, I'm cool, time to roll, it's Sunday, there's other things to happen. That's fine. You're like, no, no judgment. Uh, but just, I think we need to create a context for Q&A discussion. And I'll, I'll say it this way, because creating discussion has been a very hard thing to do over the last so many years now. Uh, that it's like, 
how, how do we do this at this point? How do we create conversation? How do we get conversation on the rug, so to speak? Uh, we need it. So we can all, and again, what this is, is like, James, James and I, we, we want to know that we're all on the same page. Like, are we heading in the same direction? Because it doesn't honestly seem like it. Um, and so we wanted to bring it to a place of account. That's the whole series that we're doing. We gotta bring it to account. We gotta have conversations. We gotta talk through it. Uh, maybe you have questions for us. Maybe you wanna draw us out a little bit more in terms of like, what are you guys frustrated with or whatever. Like, you feel free to, to do that. Um, but we can create some conversation um, here. Sound good? So five minutes. If you gotta roll, do whatever. Feel free to roll, do it. Yeah, Judson, you're fine to roll, all right? If you want to roll, that, that's totally, totally cool. So five minutes, and then we'll just kind of meet back. Does that make sense?